Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering all things blockchain. Cryptocurrencies, NFTs, DeFi, DAOs, you name it, we're covering it. But there's one catch. We focus on the legal framework surrounding blockchains. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. My guests today are the brilliant Gabe Shapiro and Sarah Brennan. Sarah is general counsel at Delphi Ventures, while Gabe is general counsel at Delphi Labs. Both of them know inside and out of crypto. They're both heavily involved in LexPunk. And this was a really enjoyable conversation for me with so many great takeaways and things to apply to, to my career. And I'm sure if you're listening, your career in the crypto space in general. We spoke about the problems that Sarah and Gabe see with the regulatory approach to crypto, what the viable path forward is, if there is one, what is decentralized legally. We talk about the philosophies relating to securities related decision making, governance structures, including transparency, best practices, what we're not seeing, as well as the game theory incentives that are important. Updating the venture model and LexPunk are also discussed very much in depth. And we end up with the end off with the rapid fire questions and the aspects of crypto law that they are both most interested in seeing develop and why. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I'm sure you'll learn a lot. Gabe and Sarah, this has uh, been circled on my calendar for a long time. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm, I'm really genuinely excited to, to hear from you guys and get into some of these questions. So thanks for joining me on the Law of Code podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. I thought we'd start with where I typically start, and uh, I find this always has some interesting story behind it, is your Genesis Blocks where you first heard of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and maybe what your initial thoughts were. And, and Gabe, I guess we could start with you on where you were first introduced to crypto and your initial thoughts. Yeah, I, uh, so I, was, I used to be a mergers and acquisitions attorney primarily um, in uh, working for like the Silicon Valley offices of, of uh, some of the big New York firms, um, longest one I was at was a firm called Wild Gotch Hall, um, which is still big and does a lot of things, uh, mainly private equity. Um, and uh, so like in the Silicon Valley office, we primarily represented um, buy side public technology companies. Uh, so that was just like my bread and butter since I started my practice, just M&A deal after M&A deal, all buy side technology deals for like Facebook, Oracle, Dell, eBay, you know, all these companies, right? So anyway, uh, we did the Facebook WhatsApp deal. Um, and I was like the like the most senior associate on it, I guess. I drafted the merger agreement and stuff like that. Brutal deal. It was like about over four days. But uh, it was all about encryption, right? Because WhatsApp had this end-to-end -end encryption. So it just kind of got me interested in encryption. Um, and 
from there I started like I actually started like reading like a math book about cryptography and stuff like that like before I ever got into cryptocurrency and uh, uh, then I re started reading about like Bitcoin um, this is like 2016 or like late 2015 um, and uh, when I read it about Ethereum and the idea of smart contracts you know that's when it actually like really kind of clicked uh, and it so happened that like right after I read about Ethereum the the very first like event I was able to find, um, which was happening in Palo Alto, was Nick Zabo giving a talk about Ethereum, which would be like unheard of today because he like reviles Ethereum, right? But back then Ethereum was very new and like it coined a lot of its concepts after his work, right? Like the smart contract was coined by Nick Zabo. Um, and like one of the like small units of like a fraction of an ETH is called a Zabo and stuff like that. And uh, uh, the DAO hack hadn't even happened yet, right? So this is pretty early. So he was talking about the DAO and some other things. And he's legally trained. He has a JD. So he was really talking about Ethereum from the perspective of the law. So that really like sucked me in basically. And I, I kind of got addicted from there. And did you have, did you find Bitcoin to be a viable product moving forward at the time? Like, were you, or were you more looking at it from an Ethereum perspective? And Bitcoin I was in was a, just, no, I was like a, a, a true, I was an Ethereum maxi before there was like <laughs> such a thing as Ethereum maxis. Uh, like, I remember I used to go on Tone Vase's Bitcoin stream and like, I would be like criticizing them in the chat and all these like Bitcoin maxis would be like hating on me, which is kind of funny because like now I like hate on all the Ethereum maxis. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely like always thought Ethereum was cooler, like it was what sucked me in. I was never like some type of um, like a hardcore libertarian survivalist uh, or like I, I hadn't really, at the time I knew very little about like these political issues around like monetary policy. So I really didn't care about that. And like, therefore like Bitcoin kind of had nothing for me. I get it more now. I understand the politics behind Bitcoin now, but back then it was just like meaningless to me. And what I thought was cool was like, Oh, like we don't, you know, I deal with like escrow agents all the time as an MA attorney. Like we wouldn't need those anymore. Right. We could just have these like trustless on-chain escrows. Right. And, and that was the thing that was cool to me. Yeah, it's interesting because everyone has a perspective on why they think crypto, what problem crypto solves. Whereas someone who works at a bank could see all oh, the wire transfers and all the, the problems that are solved here and inefficiencies. Sarah, did you have, were you an Ethereum maxi as well? Or did you have a different, different path? I definitely had a different path. Um, so not to brag, but um, I married a guy who's a developer and he was very active in magic card circles um, around when Bitcoin came out. He's probably like a level seven wizard somewhere. Um, but he was aware of it from it, it, Bitcoin was floating around back then. Um, and then like, t I think it's like 10 years ago, he was like mining Bitcoin in our living room at one point. And then he lost money on Mt. Gox and I was like, not a fan, but like he kept talking about it. And then like 2017 was when I really got into it. Um, I have more of a uh, sort of, I don't want to say human rights, but I was uh, really into microfinance. I wanted to uh, focus on that initially uh, before I ended up joining a large international law firm uh, in New York uh, and also doing M&A and private equity. But I, I worked a bit in, in microfinance 
and I worked on social uh, finance projects at the firm. They were very focused on technology as a socioeconomic equalizer, especially in developing countries where they could make leaps and bounds um, through technological advance. And people really focused on cell phone payments in like 09 through 2011. And we're investing in that um, technology. And so, you know, Bitcoin was remittance use case, the possibility of a hyperinflation, you know, safe haven. I was really interested in that use case. Uh, whether or not it ever proves true, it's like come for, you know, whatever reason you come for, stay for the memes, the people, uh, the sort of intellectual side of lawyering. And here's really, um, it's really challenging and stimulating. So, uh, but I did get in from sort of a microfinance to um, do-gooder <laughs> angle, which is different from uh, Gabe's entry point. Yeah, everyone has that, that unique entry point. And when, when you were first getting involved, sir, did you think that you would build a legal career in the crypto space or was was that so far off your no. radar? Yeah. No, I I mean, I think I did what everyone did, whereas you get interested and then you spend thousands of hours consuming information. And then there's this like chat room <laughs> You're all in on the chat rooms on Telegram, so um, started spending a lot of time, you know, on the uh, Brooklyn Projects Telegram, talking to a lot of people on the internet, following Twitter. It's just this endless information consumption, you know, when you really get in the space. Um, I did start a practice in late 2017, um, and that, you know, being a lawyer and private practice in the ICO era wasn't my favorite, um, but we've all persevered. <laughs> yeah, I, could, I could imagine you were seeing probably some similar things to what any lawyer who's helping with NFT projects is seeing now. <laughs> one, one thing I was really interested to talking to you both about was problems that you could see on uh, with the regulatory approach to crypto because there doesn't seem to be one clear path forward. It's very difficult to marry decentralization with centralized rules when you need someone to be liable and someone to say, hey, stop doing this or do it this way. And there's no one person to point to. So how have you thought about the regulatory path forward? Yeah, I guess I just want to back up from talking points. Um, you know, people are posing it like it's a binary decision, whether the laws are perfect right now or we need new laws. And I think you just need to kind of step back and, and focus on like what po public policy purpose a law serves. <laughs> Why is it there? Um, and is that purpose served by enforcing this law as it is? And if it's not, or it's imperfect, you know, there's something to improve on. Um, but people just, it's this either or proposition where it's the Wild West, it's rife with fraud, it's lawless. So it's like, well, fraud rules exist, have at it, man. Um, and other things we know are imperfect, so don't say just comply. You know, I think real thought should go into what is the purpose of this law 
does compliance serve that purpose, right? So if you're asking, you're saying securities laws apply. So you're saying that the disclosures prompted by securities laws would be helpful to a consumer or investor and serve a public policy purpose. And so if you have a decentralized project and those disclosures, those periodic disclosures mandate things like, you know, CEO pay ratios, then that's, there's some tailoring to do, right? And I think it's harder to um, deal with these issues when you're in the weeds and, and um, looking at facts than it is just to keep perpetuating talking points. I don't know why, but we can't seem to get past that stage. Gabe, did you want to chime in on that in terms of, a in terms of maybe you could speak on creating or working towards a viable path forward? Is there a path forward or are these two separate buckets that will, will need to be separate and will continue to separate in the future? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, I certainly think that everyone could do a better job in trying to formulate what sensible regulations for crypto are. Um, you know, the, the SEC or Congress could sit down and think about what disclosures make sense for token offerings, which ones don't make sense, um, which secondary market regulations make sense, which ones are inapplicable, uh, and so on. And, and they could sort of tweak things or they could just invent a new agency, uh, a new set of laws, probably another disclosure-based set of laws, or perhaps some type of law more oriented around having standards for how code is audited before it's deployed and, and having good disclosure and quality controls around that. I mean, you could imagine all sorts of things and those things could be useful. They could help protect people. They could, uh, you know, eliminate uh, information asymmetries, all these things. No one is doing this. I mean, no one for you, this has been going on for years now and, and no one seems interested in doing detailed work to figure out what regulation should look like. Um, as, as Sarah said, it, it tends to be talking points, principles. Um, I think there is like a more uh, like deep reason why that's the case, which is that ultimately this is a civil disobedience technology, right? Um, like that's just the reality of the situation. The, you know, if you go all the way back to the cypherpunks in the 90s, they were about civil disobedience. They were about like using cryptography to protect against the tyranny of the surveillance state and things of this sort, right? So I think, you know, I think it will be uh, at best a hybrid, right? There will always be um, sort of like a, like a punk side of crypto that the whole point of it is to sort of, uh, I guess one would say, um, you know, uh, like increase the Overton window um, for like what is in the sphere of civil liberties, financial liberties that that governments aren't governments aren't supposed to tamper with. Uh, and then there also, I think, could be, you know, a more regulated sphere of crypto where, you know, institutional money can come in um, and it leverages some of the same technologies. Uh, but there there is there is something there's a fundamental clash there. And I think that's like sort of like why there there actually has been no real progress because the different factions kind of talk past each other and ultimately it's meant to be something that allows you to exit unjust laws right um just like you know in the 60s 
you know, sit-ins were kind of like, you know, probably they were illegal, right? Because they involved like loitering and the businesses didn't want the people there. It was a form of civil disobedience and ultimately it helped society evolve. But, you know, people had to, uh, uh, you know, basically defy unjust laws uh, in order to get there. I think the exact same thing is true of crypto. People don't like securities laws, right? They think anyone should be able to invest. Uh, they think it's a rigged game, right? This to allow that. Basically, I mean, think about it, right? Like, VC, like early stage VCs, like they literally cannot lose, right? At least in like the current markets in like you know, like the last five years. And so it's kind of crazy, right, to say that like to protect people, you're shutting them out of this because like literally it's only retail losers, uh, retail losers. It's only like retail plebs who ever lose at anything, right? Like when, when Coinbase went public and people bought it at this insane valuation and it like almost immediately like dipped quite a bit. Those were the retail guys that supposedly were protected by this, like, you know, like carefully arranged pipeline where you can't go public until a certain point. And like the early stage guys, like yeah, there was barely ever any chance that they could ever take a loss. Right? Maybe in the very, very early stages, like the pre-seed round or the seed round. Right. And then like from then on, it was basically a sure thing that, you know, someone investing in Coinbase's Series D, I mean, they knew they were going to make a huge profit for sure. And every like normal person is shut out of that. So like the average person sees that and they, they just think that it's an unjust system, right? And they want to use crypto to to give themselves a chance to get those same types of returns, you know, that that society says is illegal for them to get. So I, I do think that it's a it's a deeper challenge on some level, you know, but it's also something where like ultimately I hope there can be some type of harmony. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot. Uh-huh. Oh, I was going to say, there's also, you know, like the law itself <coughs> and what it's predicated on. And then like just enforcing law, right? Is it the highest and best use of the SEC's limited resource to uh, protect the public from free airdrops or shutting down projects where no one was harmed or lost money? Um, there's just like a disconnect in the space where the SEC really becomes the primary cause of retail harm in a lot of instances through enforcement. Um, not really sure, you know, wh- why there's this focus on this when there's no harm. I-, I think that it's creating a kind of a PR issue for them when they tell people to uh, come in. You know, it's it, what are they <laughs> advancing here? You know, if, if people come in, they get referred to enforcement, like that PR issue could be solved very easily if people made gains and there was productive dialogue and, and, and there was uh, a positive outcome, it's just really not sure what the end goal is um, when you see stuff like this. Although there's a lot of nice airdrop memes out there. I think that's been the, the best part so far in terms of just that whole process is the memes have really, they've peaked almost more than NFTs, I think, over the past couple of years. <laughs> But there, there's so much to unpack with both of uh, what both of you said. And I thought the, uh, the book published in 1997, The Sovereign Individual, did a good job of examining the similarities with the printing press and the church comparing. And this was before Bitcoin, of course. And so they, can, they were comparing cyber currencies with today's monetary policy and what government response was likely to be. And it's crazy to reread that book and to see what's gone on in society with remote work and everything, which obviously was accelerated due to COVID. But 
it's it doesn't seem like there is a ver- there's not a great congruence between SEC tokens and giving people this monetary freedom. And I think Gabe, you wrote a bit about the essentialism versus functionalism approach, looking at the intrinsic features versus the the doc test and what are tokens and what they should be. And I think this competing philosophies about how to view tokens is where the SEC and maybe regular retail investors and institutions can differ. I'm not sure which one of you would want to take the first crack at this, but what in your perspective, it's a big question and probably I'll get the legal answer that it depends, but what are tokens legally and what, what are they legally now or where do they best fit in and what should they be? And maybe what should change in the future so that there's maybe a new category for them? I know that's a very long winded question, but solidly going with it depends yeah. right. <laughs> as yeah. a solid answer so so like um yeah so there's a lot there the from a what what's interesting now i think right where so what is essentialism what is functionalism why do i talk about those things in relation to tokens and securities laws so essentialism these are essentially like at the like in the purest form they're like metaphysics philosophies right like you know like plato is said to be an essentialist right aristotle is said to be you know uh, more of a functionalist right plato thought there were these like transcendent you know forms or essences that defined like like what is the wetness of water right water is characterized by its wetness that's the essence of water right um uh, uh you know and uh, and on the other hand aristotle was more in this tradition of like observation and and somewhat of relativism right and that you just like that's just a divide that exists in philosophy in the securities law context um like i've observed and participated in a lot of debates among crypto lawyers and regulators and this was kind of a theme that i saw emerge right like if you talk to certain securities lawyers when they're talking about crypto and i think like the block stack regulation eight plus filing uh, from a while ago, uh, uh, back in 2019, I think, um, sort of epitomizes this, right? Because they wanted to register this token offering under Regulation A plus of the SEC, which is very is is like is less burdensome than doing a full IPO, but still pretty good because it allows the tokens to be liquid and things like that, right? So, but it's it's a burdensome process. The SEC has to. You know, they don't call it approval, uh, they call it qualification, but it's basically approval um, and, you know, elaborate filings, audited financials, all this stuff. Anyway, this was the first time anyone attempted to do this for something like a utility token, right? So when they filed their Regulation A plus uh, form, the SEC asked them a lot of questions and all these questions are public, right? Because they have to make this correspondence public. So you can see what they were and they were things like, well, like, what about the fact that like what about like when you block stack are holding the tokens because they haven't been fully distributed yet does that mean you're an investment company should you be registering as an investment company um what about the fact that your uh, uh that the tokens are being burned on the network at the same time as they're being issued as block rewards does that trigger does that violate something called regulation m where you know an issuer of token of securities is not supposed to be buying and selling those securities at the same time, right? 
things like this. They had a ton of questions, right? And they took, you know, I think very cleverly, and at the time the SEC accepted these very functionalistic arguments. They said, well, no, the tokens are securities when they're issued to the public, but they are not securities in the hands of Blockstack because Blockstack has no uh, investment intent with respect to them, right? They're basically just pieces of data when Blockstack is holding, right? Um, when they're being burned, they're not securities or it's not a securities purchase, you know, they're only securities when they're being issued, right? So it's this very functionalistic way of looking at it, right? And uh, uh, now a different view would be like, once a security, like a security is a security, right? If you're once a security, you're always a security. Like there's no case law that ever talks about securities morphing into non-securities or like certain instruments being securities for certain purposes and not others. Like this is unprecedented and, and you know, how could you do this, right? Um, so those are, those are kind of like the two philosophies. And when, the, when Gary Hinman, uh, who at the time was head of Corpfin in, uh, in the SEC, came out with his famous speech about Ethereum in 2018, you know, when, when Howie met Gary Perrin's plastic, he basically introduced this functionalist philosophy where uh, certain transactions in tokens are securities transactions, but this doesn't mean that the token is a security or a different way of saying basically the same thing is that, you know, a token can be a security in certain contexts and not others. Right. Um, and I think that this would be uh, this was basically a good philosophy. Right. Because when a token is sold by someone to a venture capital investor and the venture capital investor is trying to make a profit and maybe the, the platform's not fully built, built out yet um, and they're facing a lot of risk. I mean, yeah, that, that probably should be treated as a security. And if the token happens to be issued to the public when the people are still, you know, putting in massive entrepreneurial efforts to, you know, flesh out the functionality of what's been promised and what's been dreamt of, uh, then yeah, that probably should be a security, right? But when they're done with it, right, then it probably shouldn't be a security anymore. It just makes sense, right? Um, so I think this is reasonable. And I think that's kind of how the SEC viewed it from like 2018 through 2021. Now what's interesting is I think we have like an essentialist SEC, right? They are like basically, oh, it's a security, they're all securities. There's no such thing as securities not morphing, uh, securities morphing from securities to non-securities. And so like basically we have like a different philosophy now. Right. Um, which is unfortunate. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but this is the idea. Um, and so I think if you like just took a functionalist stance toward the security side of it, you'd be a lot better off. Right. Because you could look at the situations where there are information asymmetries, where there is a certain type of trust or a certain type of risk. You could apply the securities laws there and you could do that without saying that, you know, when the a different type of transaction with that doesn't have those risks is happening somewhere else. You don't have to apply the securities laws to that. That would be more rational. Isn't this SEC game also using the duck test where every, everything's a duck? Yeah, well, the duck test is, um, I, suppose, I suppose that's true. Uh, the duck test is a sort of functionalism, um, but I don't think that they are, they don't appear particularly willing to like, go transaction by transaction when they're applying the duck test, right? They just look at whether there's any aspect of the asset 
that meets the duck test. And if it does, then it is a secure. everything's a duck. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Duck Hunter 2021. <laughs> that's a that's a great analogy. Um Sarah, did you did you have any thoughts on, on that approach? And and maybe I know Gabe did a great job of unpacking it. Maybe you could talk about how there might be a best case or a best best path forward that is a merge of the two, or is it one uh, or the other? It's such a hard path forward. I, I think the danger is flip-flopping and the inconsistency when people were really depending um, on uh, that him and take and then reversing it is um, introducing extra uncertainty in into a murky field as we had it. Um, but I, you know, and I've said this before that when you are using a, a duck test and you're uh, you're um, leading by enforcement, there's a, you know, your your tendency is to be over inclusive, and th that's the feels <laughs> that I'm getting right now, especially with the approach where you know you over there exchange. I don't want to get into what's a security, but math tells me there must be one on there. So I'm going to pursue an enforcement action um, without actually giving you a determination. You should have known. I'm not going to tell you or fact find or like take that to the tape, but I'm going to pursue enforcement because math. Um, again, I, I just feel like that regulatory environment um, is pretty low trust and hostile. And I don't know that that serves, you know, a, a long-term or mid-term public policy goal, um, constructively working together to address, you know, risks. Everyone, I, I would say, thinks that disclosures and transparency and information asymmetries are noble goals to solve um, and, and people want to solve them. So I don't have a perfect path forward, but I, I think that, um, you know, increased trust and dialogue would be very helpful to get there. Yeah. And it's also important to look at why these rules were created in the first place, like you alluded to earlier. And how do we fulfill that goal? Because those they were created with positive things in mind to protect consumers, to stop money laundering and things like that. But at the same time, you need to compare that to today's technology and, and have a modernized system. And in terms of decentralization, uh, this is what I found probably one of the most interesting things with DAOs uh, as well, just because of all the potential issues that they can solve and what they enable in the future. Constitution DAO was such a great example of, I think it was two weeks, they raised $40 million to, unfortunately they failed, but it's just a good example of okay, if you can do something like that that quickly over the long run, who knows what's possible. What is decentralization legally? And that's something that I'm genuinely curious about because I haven't seen it defined anywhere. And I think the most important part is why is that important? I look at decentralization in the context of securities laws and Gabe like, has done a lot of writing and speaking on, on that, um, but there's a point when uh, you know a project is not dependent on the efforts of a discernible group of people, where 
<laughs> you would look to those people um, as a unified knowledge group to do a securities filing and then to be held accountable if um, there are inaccuracies or misrepresentations in those filings. It just wouldn't, again, serve a public policy purpose to make that group uh, accountable um, for inaccuracies. Um, that's kind of a wishy-washy answer because no one has you know, defined what when decentralization has been successfully achieved, but that's kind of what I think of it. Um, when you are no longer able to you know, comply or it no longer makes sense to be held um, to you know, misrepresentation or fraud standards um, as you know, a promoter, the, the party that's uh, the projects you know, dependent on the efforts. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and through case law, if there's ever any issues, whereas maybe there's a number, right? Maybe it's over 100 people and or not even people, right? 100 pseudonymous individuals versus, okay, maybe it's a 1,000. Or do you do the functionalism approach where, hey, there's a 1,000 people, but this one group is doing all the work? What, what did you think, Abe? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, yeah, so I wrote an article about this called Defining Decentralization for Law. So pretty pretty much is directly responsive. Um, uh, you know, and it was obviously inspired by Hinden's speech and, and a lot of dialogue at the time about what it means. Uh, and it, yeah, it always struck me as odd, right? Because like, I thought that was a great path um, to this idea that, yeah, the laws apply to you unless you're decentralized. You would think that that any person who's really into crypto would like love that, right? Because the whole idea, right, is is decentralization, and so the, such a policy would sort of punish fake decentralization or like fake crypto, and reward, uh, you know, handsomely reward, in fact, um, you know, de true crypto or like decentralized, like truly decentralized technologies, and like the, the always the weird thing to me about it was like so many crypto lawyers, especially were like so against this, right? They were like, oh, like you, you could never define decentralization. Like who, who could even know what that means? But like, I, I just fundamentally disagree with that, right? There are so many concepts in law, right? That if you were like, if you just like unlearned everything you think you already know about the law and like you just have like a five-year-old's mind about it, right? And like, you know, you say to like the five-year-old, well, yes, like this person was like punished uh, for, um, you know, uh, uh, like crashing the car into the other car uh, because they were negligent and the other person was not punished because they were not negligent, right? And they would be like, what is negligence? Like, this is unfair. Like, I don't know what negligence means, right? It's just like, yeah, there are fuzzy, there's fuzzy logic all over the law, right? So if like society decides that they care about this line drawing exercise, then certainly the law can accommodate that, right? And we can invent tests and standards for determining like where to draw this line. And I think it's actually rather intuitive, right? It's ultimately about power, right? If someone doesn't control something, how can you hold them responsible for that, right? It's, it's just, at the end of the day, it's just like very intuitive. Um, so like, no, you know, if you went to any given miner on the Bitcoin network and said, I want you to reverse that last transaction, they would truthfully tell you, I am, sir, I'm not able to do that, right? This means it's decentralized, at least in that particular respect, 
right? Um, and so it's not hard, right? Um, so like, I, you know, I propose like, you know, sort of like two flavors of tests, right? One is sort of like a safe harbor um, that is more numerical and more conservative, right? Because whenever you're doing a safe harbor, you don't, you, you know, since it does have bright lines, you want to, you don't want to include a large class of things under that safe harbor. Otherwise, you're just really incentivizing bad behavior called, you know, good arts law. Um, and then also a more flexible judicial test, right? Where you could, you could look at the different dimensions of power within a system. Right? You could say, what types of power in a blockchain system? Well, there's consensus power, right? That's the, the miners have that or whoever is producing the blocks has that, right? Sometimes it's like individual miners, sometimes in like some type of, um, like in some proof of stake systems, it's actually kind of like all the miners collectively have power over each of the blocks. Whatever it is, you just define who has that power, right? Um, you look at who has power to define the protocol, right, or upgrades to the protocol, right? Um, and, you know, usually that's a completely different set of persons, right? It's usually some type of core development team or whatever, and it's not miners. And you look at how these different layers of power, if you look at each layer and you say, does anyone sort of dominate this form of power? And then you can also look at the way the layers interact with each other, right? You could say, well, uh, this the mining is rather concentrated, but it turns out like anytime the miners abuse their mining power, the developers can like destroy them, you know, by deploying an upgrade that that just like reverses it, right? Um, and so these two things cancel each other out, and, and it turns out no one is really in control. Um, and, and so you could just do it that way. And I honestly think it, it's not hard. And the lawyers who constantly say it's impossible they're wrong um they're they're fudding basically they have their own pet theories but everyone should just align around this philosophy because it is what blockchain's about it's the entire point is to more evenly distribute power so it aligns with the purposes of the technology and, it, and in terms of the law it aligns with fairness and common sense that you don't hold people responsible for what they can't control. Now, a lot of what's happening on the regulatory front, I think, is like regulators basically saying to themselves, well, if no one's in control, then we can't control them. So like we basically have to like try to somehow like make it illegal to create a system where no one's in control, but it's never going to work. And it's particularly not going to work in the US because we have the First Amendment. It might be a long battle, but ultimately we're allowed to create software, right? Um, so so I do think that this is what people should focus on. I do think it's definable. And I do think it, it ultimately all hangs together and it's not really that mysterious. I think there's so many benefits, even with that decentralized safe harbor, because when you think about it, Bitcoin, when it was first created, it wasn't decentralized. There was one miner who was running all the transactions and then how Finney got involved and so many other people as well. And you have that test where, okay, you have a couple years or months or a certain timeline until you can meet these decentralization parameters. And when you do, it's more secure for the network. If, if Vitalik owned all the majority of the Ethereum tokens, how could you trust any of the transactions? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, whether there's a safe harbor, I mean, personally, like I'm pretty game for the idea that when it's centralized, you, like, yeah, it should be regulated, right? Like, I don't know that there really needs to be a safe harbor. There just needs to be a way so there just needs to be some accommodation so that if you started out under the regulatory framework, when it is centralized, that there's still ultimately a way of reaching that useful decentralization point. And the problem right now is that there, there isn't 
that doesn't exist, right? Like if you were, let's just say that someone wanted to treat their initial token distribution event as a securities offering on the theory that, uh, of course, it starts out centralized because it takes a while to get enough distribution and get people governing the system and all this stuff. Okay, fine. But what what theory would they use? If they thought if they tried to go for a full-blown IPO, which first of all would be enormously expensive and, and time-consuming, uh, but put that aside, uh, um, uh, if, they, if they tried to file for a full IPO, the SEC would reject it. Right, because they would they would say, well, uh, the way you want to use this token, like like when the miners are using it, they're like broker dealers or something, right? Uh, uh, but they're they're not registered as broker dealers um, when the tokens are you know trading peer to peer the way you want them to. That's not going to be the like the ledger itself isn't an exchange, and you the who is a technology company who created this, you are not a transfer agent. And even if you do go and register as a transfer agent, one of the requirements for a transfer agent is that you require everything to be KYC'd and you've designed the technology in a way where you can't do the KYC. They would not approve it. They would, they would never approve the S1. They couldn't approve it because it doesn't comply with the current laws for how securities are supposed to work. So, so then, so, and then on the other hand, if you went kind of the private placement route, like say you tried to do, you know, like a, a um, you know, like a Reg CF crowdfunding, which does allow you to sell and distribute to retails, well, just like an S1 does, but it has lower hurdles, like you don't have to do the audited financials as long as you're below a certain dollar limit uh, in terms of what you raise and so on. Then, then if they did that, then one of the conditions on using that exemption is that the tokens have to be illiquid, right? Which means that you would never, so again, you would never get to the point of distribution because you can't transfer the tokens, right? So like the SEC could easily, uh, they, they could bring everyone under their reporting regime if they just tweaked this, right? If they made like reg CF and the tokens could be transferable and as long as they're like trading on a DEX or something that's deemed to be peer to peer. So there's no violation of the Exchange Act rules with that. Then everyone would do it, right? Everyone and and everyone would be better protected because there would be the disclosure. But the SEC does not want to admit that the peer to peer trading on chain isn't a securities exchange. So they they won't give that release. So you see, it's like it's it's a, it's a regime that was designed to just give people more information before they made a decision, but it's being used to just prohibit a certain type of uh, asset from being distributed at all, right? Uh, um, so it, it's very disingenuous when they say, oh, you know, come in and register. If you try to register, they, they won't let you register unless you change the product to be fully KYC'd and all these things, which would make the product useless, right? Um, so, so, so this is the this is the problem in a nutshell. <laughs> and that goes back to those fundamental clashes too. And I, I like what you said about governance structure or governance because that's going to play such a large role. There's a devs team, there's a governance, there's the token holders, there's staking, there's so many proof of work mining, all that stuff. And I think governance structures are really going to continue to evolve. And they, they have evolved since Bitcoin was initially, the white paper was initially published. Sarah, I'd be curious to know what good governance in the crypto realm means, including disclosure, transparency. Maybe you can touch on the goals of good governance and then the theories and what we're seeing or best practices that you've seen. Uh, and then we could talk maybe a little bit about the future. Yeah. I know uh, Gabe and I both have thoughts on this, but uh, to me, good governance is about uh, aligning incentives among stakeholders 
and in terms of like the broader mission, vision, values of a project, um, and you know, elements of that are transparency, fixing information asymmetries, disclosure stuff. Um, there's a lot of experimentation um, going on in governance, and I think. Uh, uh, that those sort of uh, different models and, and failures and that sort of stuff, it's fascinating. But I think uh, bad governance can be gamed to the extent that um, it's inept, corrupted, or, you know, rendered impotent. Um, and all governance, you know, involves trade-offs and some degree of this. Everything's imperfect. But I think that crypto governance at its worst is less transparent than public markets, um, more capable of being gamed where you can hide conflict transactions, you can hide concentration of power, um, self-interest can reign over, you know, the, the project's um, long-term, mid-term goals. Um, so one thing that we've talked a lot about at different points were the delegation models. I think that Experiments there are imperfect, um, but they serve a purpose solving free rider issues. Um, you can pull votes with sort of a professionalized provider. That has not always happened, um, but that person, it takes a lot to stay informed and make good decisions on voting. And with centralized governance, um, there is a huge burden on staying up to date so that you could make an informed vote. So they would serve a goal, um, but I think governance also needs to set guidelines um, so that you don't have these situations where sort of non-interest aligned um, delegates are spending a project's money on pet projects. They're like over here. Um, that's, you know, not an optimal outcome of delegation, clearly. Um, but I, I think that um, there's hope there, <laughs> probably more than Gabe does. Um, and I know there's other sort of things that are being played around with, you know, you solve something, you know, with uh, a threshold to be involved in governance, or you need to stake, you know, but then there's, you have more of a concentration and who has voting capacity and power, but you're solving spam. So you have to, it, it's a delicate balance. It's hard, it's hard to solve. It's hard to solve. Yeah, uh, right. I agree. With, I agree with all that. Um, I think for me, so yeah, I mean, like Sarah, I was, you know, sort of like trained as a corporate lawyer, right? And so if you look at like, if you look at, you know, great corporate law jurisdictions like Delaware, right? We have a whole body of common law they've evolved around governance. And a major theme of that law is the potential for a majority of voting power to oppress a minority of voting power, as well as what's called the separation between ownership and control, which is the power of management to oppress uh, the sort of passive investors, the non-managing investors, right? And I think like in general, um, 
like there's a lot like uh, all the Dow stuff is very interesting and has a lot of potential, but in the vast majority of cases, it is like ob- currently objectively worse governance than what you would get in like a Delaware corporation, right? Because you all you just ha- all you have is just coin and like Vitalik has written a lot on this and like the perils of coin-based voting, but all you have is this voting power, right? And if if like uh, the right club gets together and they're sort of like extrinsically affiliated with each other, which, you know, extrinsically affiliated is just a fancy way of saying um, like, oh, like uh, maybe they all like happen to be friends independently of this Dow thing. Or maybe uh, they're like in a fund together and they also have the same other investments in other things. Right. They're the same as each other, basically, and the same incentives. You know, they, they can just like they could just appropriate the whole DAO for themselves, basically. And like the minority might not even ever know that they are extrinsically affiliated and that this abuse is happening. Um, uh, furthermore, even if the minority did know, there'd be nothing they could really do about it, right? Because these majority holders, like at least current under current law, like there's no case that says a majority of DAO token holders owe like fiduciary duties or something like that to the minority. And like, you know, if there was such a case, then the majority would just work harder so that like their identities are not known so they can't be sued. Um, And so like, I think what it's about is like, yeah, like I love the DAO stuff and the governance stuff, but we have to find mechanisms that are as good or better at the minority protection piece uh, than like a corporation is. Otherwise, like, all we're actually doing is um, like this, this ceases to be about individual freedom. In fact, it can become like an amazing tool for individual oppression uh, by by like clubs and majorities, right? Um, so, like the example I really like, and I, I give a lot of credit to Amin Soleimani for, without any corporate law training, understanding this very well from more of a, a hacker sort of blue team, red team and, you know, adversarial security perspective is there has to be, if there's no legal protection mechanism and there are no duties, which is is what tends to be the case for blockchain environments, then there has to be a mechanism that gives the minority a remedy when they're being treated unfairly. And for him, that that's his Moloch architecture, uh, which basically enables free exit from the DAO. Right. So, yeah, the majority could be horrible. They could pass oppressive things. They could steal all the money for themselves, basically. Uh, but the if you build in the right delay uh, and someone can exit after something is approved for, say, two weeks or something like that before the money goes out, then they can at least protect themselves that way. And And this actually is interesting, right, because it is actually objectively, arguably, uh, an improvement over corporate governance, right? Because if you're a minority in a corporation and the management approves, we're just going to pay ourselves this massive bonus, right? Well, there would be nothing you could do, right? Other than just go to court um, and like spend all this money. And like, maybe you're a really small holder, you can't afford that. And so like, maybe you can find a class action attorney, but is it like a big enough issue for the class action attorney to invest in, or do they have better targets or whatever, right? It's actually, there's a very high hurdle. But with a Moloch DAO, there's a very, a very low hurdle. Even if you only hold $5 in the DAO, 
you can get that $5 out and your only real hurdle is like, what's the transaction? How much gas do you have to pay on Ethereum, you know, for that transaction? These days is a lot, right? So $5 is probably too little, but you know, if it's like $500, right, it still might be worth it, right? So, um, so like, like that's the type of thing that interests me. And I think that unfortunately, like very few people in the DAO space are like focused on this minority protection issue. And they're more about like speed and scale. Olympus DAO, you know, obviously like what they've done is phenomenal. A lot of people have gotten rich off of it, more power to them, but there's, there's zero thought about this issue. It's just a pure collectivism, majority rule. The, the protocol owns all the value and there's no real way, no good way of like really getting it out for yourself if you disagree, you know, unless you're just willing to take a huge discount and like lose, lose the entire market premium, et cetera. Um, so like, this is what we need to get better at. If it's, if like the governance is going to be like a real innovation, I think. I found the, the game theory aspects related to crypto, what really made me dive in and what was appealing to me, because the more I got into Bitcoin and how proof of work works and how it incentivizes miners to act in their best interest, which aligns with the networks fascinating because that's the only way you can essentially ensure security especially when it relates to DAOs and I was explaining DAOs to a partner at my firm and saying how everyone can hold tokens and the big issue that you raised was okay but what if I have 17 accounts and there's 20 tokens and each account has one and then you each have one and someone else has one well now I have a clear majority I can pass things but you don't know and like you said, there's there's that issue with transparency. It's so how do you incentivize large holders to maybe be transparent? And I think wherever there's an opportunity for someone to make a lot of money, and I think smart contract auditing, a lot of like DAO auditing, even those will be big things. I don't know how that could be done. I just think those are a lot of potential there. Sarah, did you is there something that you think we'll see, maybe based on what I just said in terms of auditing or ways to game theory incentives to create, maybe Gabe, like Gabe, either of you can jump in, but are there game theory mechanisms that you've seen be used successfully in DAOs or that you've sort of pushed for in DAOs or could have thought about? Well, I think, you know, like one, one was the one I just mentioned, right? Rage quit, right? Within the, within a Moloch DAO. I just think it's a beautiful mechanism um, and, and a clear improvement. The um, Gabe, sorry to interrupt. I have oh, a question sure. about that. Sure. When you rage quit, is there yeah. not the concern that the value of that, to say you, the value of the token, if you're going to sell it at the time, would have gone down based on this resolution being passed? Uh, it, so it depends. Um, there, rage quit isn't perfect, right? It really, and this is why like, I, I always like, like Richard Hart's line. I know a lot of people hate Richard Hart, but he has a beautiful line, which I think is true, which is that blockchain becomes useless every time it touches the real world. And I think... I don't think that will always be true, but I do think it's current. It is currently true uh, because let's just say, for example, part of the purpose of your DAO was to own some IP, right? Well, with that rage quit mechanism, like there's no way to currently like the the external world doesn't recognize tokens as like instruments that can like enforceably definitely represent some fraction of intellectual property right and so there wouldn't be a good rage quit mechanism 
for like just taking out your fraction of the IP. And what does it even mean after that, right? How do you fraction IP? It doesn't even make any sense, right? Like, you know, like ultimately someone has to have the authority to license it, right? And if someone just takes a, off like one fifth of that authority or something, then like what, it just doesn't, you know, it's like there are certain things it doesn't work for, but if it's all a bunch of like bearer tokens, right? Then it works quite well, right? If it's a ETH and, you know, some Bitcoin or, or whatever, so I guess it'd be wrapped Bitcoin in this case, but whatever it is, you know, th those you can take the pro on a share of. It gets harder when it's rights, or real world things, we still don't have a great solution for that. Um, uh, but yeah, does, does that kind of answer your question? Like, I think it'd be like you, like you, we just wouldn't do a Moloch DAO in that case if like that were the dynamic. It just, it just wouldn't make sense. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like some of the stuff that's being worked on is more virtue signaling work that we've uh, done a little bit of at LexPunk with, you know, disclosures, delegate disclosures, and policies. And there's a lot of people that are interested. Um, and virtue signaling and the the consequence, the teeth of that is that the space is decent at um, pointing out when they find them and shunning and shaming hypocrites and people engaged in creative bad acts. Um, and then you've lost your sort of moral, uh, you know, high horse or your pedestal there. Um, but I think that's something that needs to be worked out more, certainly, um, providing teeth to, to standards of conduct and, and transparency and that sort of thing. There's also, uh, uh, I agree with all that. There's also, um, I like the other thing I think is that we just need to like incentivize the participation in governance itself, right? Like we've gotten very good at incentivizing liquidity, block production, certain things, right? This need we need primitives for actually incentivizing the participation in governance and like getting that flywheel going. Um, so I definitely think that is on the horizon. Like I think that in 2022 there will be uh, like there will be like a renaissance of DAOs. Um, I know there's like tons of rounds going on, a lot of interesting ideas. One I like a lot is uh, you know. Uh, called coordinate, um, which is just a, just a very elegant mechanism for people deciding in a decentralized way how much everyone should get paid over a period of time for their work, right? It's just basically, you know, you assign everyone else but yourself points, right? And and they and then like they assign you points, right? And then like at the end you just like do a pro rata calculation and split it up, but like. Like DAOs love it, right? It's like it's very simple, but it's it sounds almost like stupidly simple, but it's actually like genius. Um, and I just think there will be like a lot of gamification and mechanisms like that, including like token rewards. That the more you participate in governance, the more governance voice you get, um, and it becomes a flywheel, right? And there needs to be sort of like a mechanism for increasing your power. The better you do at governance, and decreasing your power, the worse you do at governance. Right. And I, I definitely think that that this will arise and that it's like sort of like a solvable problem. Um, it's just not something that, you know, the industry is fully fleshed out yet. It'll be interesting to see DAOs develop because it's been 2017 was the ICO boom, 2020 NFTs. And I think everyone in the industry sees DAOs as the next inevitable progression. And I can imagine in four years, if we have the same conversation, we won't even have to think about any. There'll be so many that have been tried and tested out. 
I was glad you brought up Lex Punk, Sarah. It made it an easy transition for me to go into the uh, the next question. I was wondering if one of you could give maybe a quick two minute two minute intro uh, to people who have heard of Lex Punk, think it's really cool, but they're not exactly sure what it does or how they would be part of it and how they could contribute. In a nutshell, uh, like like think about what like cypherpunk is and like Lex Punk is meant to be that except for like law rather than cryptography, right? It's like taking the law into the people's hands um, and just having more of a uh, tool oriented mentality about it. Um, and of course it could go well beyond crypto. Honestly, it's mostly, you know, cause we're all in crypto uh, you know, it's that's, that's been the focus, but like ultimately I think it's like an ethos that could extend to, you know, the way law relates to things like 3D printing and, and botnets and, and just, just a million things, right? Um, it, it's law for a peer-to-peer world, right? Because like current law is heavily predicated on the idea that there are people who can control stuff and you should, you know, like we were talking about before, there are people who control stuff and you can hold responsible for things. And with all the automation and the peer-to-peer and and, and all these things, we're moving away from that paradigm. So we have to think the same way about law, right? Can lawyers work more like developers? What does agile work mean for a legal team, right? Like why don't lawyers, like it's considered a very good way to train programmers to do what's called pair programming, right? Where like two people code something together. But like, if you go to like one of the top law firms like Gravath or something like that, uh, you know, they would be horrified at the idea that like a senior associate and a junior associate might like draft a document together. Instead, they like give the junior associate very vague instructions. The junior associate works on it for like 40 hours billing the client for that. Then they send it to the like mid-level associate. The mid-level associate says this is all wrong. They give like some, make some changes. It, it, it's like horrible, right? So it, it's about bringing lawyers and developers better together. It's about updating the mentality behind law and and basically um, you know just just going for it and and not overthinking it as much as lawyers tend to do. Yeah, no, I we're super aligned on it. I also see it as a movement. Um, it's not dependent on a single group going forward. Um, I think that um, we're really focused on right now and working through projects um, with the goal of legal. Uh, you know, vis-a-vis DeFi, right, or the space to go beyond like issue spotting exercises and really focus on giving actionable guidance. People don't need to read another paper um, without any solid conclusions. Um, We're we're trying to also at the same time, right, while focusing on actionable guidance and progress and ideas um, to open source some of these structuring exercises that are really bespoke um, and, and give sort of a starting place to the people. I mean, it's not, we're not going to replace people having lawyers, but the exercise in private practice of getting a new client, you know, in your silo, starting from scratch without in a knowledge vacuum and uh, billing for all of that. When the work's being done, people in this space are it's law matching the open source ethos, right? People are actually, lawyers are really willing to collaborate that are really in this space to produce combined work product. I think it's, this is like the geekier side of me, but this is like 
what's most exciting about it is getting to collaborate. Uh, crypto law and private practice is super lonely. <laughs> Um, and you have a lot of kind of existential crises on, you know, did I not think of something and getting seven, 10 people in a room and like collaborating and talking through and really being confident that you're producing the best form that that could, you know, exist and then sending into the world for people to improve upon. So like, I think that's really exciting for, for a lawyer, a little, a rich life on the internet, remember? So, I mean, that that kind of stuff excites me and it going beyond us. Um, there's, uh, Gabe's like one of the forerunners of open sourcing his stuff, but there's like a solid core group of people out there that have started this. And it, I think it's really catching on, which is pretty exciting. And I hope it doesn't stop at crypto. I hope it inspires other factions of lawyers to jump on this because it's just a win for everyone when I started law, I would ask a lot of people, what's the most important thing about being a lawyer? And it was reputation. That's everything. And when you open source documents, you're taking that risk. Well, hey, maybe your reputation goes down, but you're also getting that upside as well. And so the good lawyers will be able to say, hey, that's a risk I'm willing to take because I'm confident. And especially in a collaborative manner as well, where now there's a bunch of people who've gone, you've gone through those checks. And I think it's, it's a win-win. And I think it's a really great thing for the profession, which has been very walled off. Um, for since its origins in, I think it was Britain. In terms of the venture model, which is also something that's been walled off uh, maybe since accredited investor protections came around, maybe before, um, always need to protect the people from un unbelievable potential gains. But I, I was wondering, Sarah, maybe you could talk a bit about how the venture model for DeFi, maybe you could say how it was different, how it is different than the traditional venture model. And then going forward, what or and then what problems have emerged because of that? Sure. I guess I'll just back up because I did allude to, you know, working in, in private practice in 2017, the ICO era. Um, so and, and I'll come back to this concept of in any situation, right? Alignment of incentives is really important. And when they aren't aligned, like any situation can become toxic. So I was working company side in 2017 uh, in venture and it was any of those deals was like a bummer. Um, I do think we've come a long way, but you know, in 2017, it was the era of, and let me just back up. VCs aren't always the bad guys. Like projects aren't always the good guys. You can have a project that, um, you know, dumps on everyone. Uh, so I don't want to like do this black and white thing, but you know, I, I had a couple projects where VCs uh, were looking to get liquid immediately, like at TGE um, and dump while shifting the responsibility to the company um, for indemnification or violations of law. Um, and, you know, you put in a certain amount and ask the company to spend like three X that to like structure this, to try and make it happen. Just like bad faith all around. And it really, to me, um, reinforced, you know, we have all these laws that exist for a reason, right? You have a little baby company that needs to be nurtured. <laughs> it needs to grow. Uh, it needs the time to do that. Um, and so when you come in as a traditional VC, you wait eight years for an exit 
and you have an incentive alignment to grow with the company um, and that sort of thing um, long-term as a partnership. And there are varying degrees of VCs doing that well or not in the traditional space. I don't want to get into that. Um, but, you know, fast forward to DeFi, right? I think some of the alignment of incentives got solved by lockups being longer um, and people sticking around. And that's not just on the VC side, right? That's project side lockups. Everybody's locked up. Anyone, everybody's in it for the long haul. And then some of it's also just, you know, who you pick as a partner <laughs> um, and choosing uh, a VC that has a value add. It's a symbiotic, um, accretive relationship for both of you. It's not sort of parasitic or whatever, one way or another. And really viewing it as a partnership um, where you're mutually respectful and protective of the, your, you know, each other's interests and in balancing those and the health of the project. Um, I know that's a very um, kumbaya type of way of looking at it, um, but I think DeFi, um, so I talked about lockup solving a problem. Another big problem is deals with an equity component um, and a token um, where a VC, um, whether, I guess whether or not they, um, get the token, just making sure, you know, when there's a liquidity event that incentives are aligned and when they're not, um, your stakeholders between your equity holders and your tokens, when they don't have sort of the same goals, it creates uh, conflicts of interest and prob just problems that need to be ca carefully thought through there. Two points on that. One, Satoshi Nakamoto must have signed a pretty long lockup. That, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the second one is, is incentives too. And I think incentives are so important. It goes back to game theory. And, and I think yeah. it was Charlie Munger who said the best predictor of human behavior is where they're incentivized. Yeah. And uh, crypto is great because you can create incentives on chain where they're immutable and they can't be changed. So you can predict how behavior is going to go going forward. And there's a reason Bitcoin hasn't been hacked yet because you'll make way more money just by being a validator and mining as opposed to using all that energy to hack. Gabe, did you have thoughts on the problems uh, relating to oh, yeah, the yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and by, by the way, yeah, the, the greatest lockup provision is, is losing your private keys. Uh, <laughs> right. But uh, which probably, uh, you know, I guess is what happened. Either Satoshi died or, or they lost their keys. Um, but... Basically, for a year and a half, all I did was negotiate on behalf of DeFi teams with VCs to do their financing rounds, right? So, um, the, like all the peculiarities Sarah noted are certainly correct. I think there is like a very, very, there are like deeply troubling issues and flaws uh, in the entire way that this financing market has evolved, right? Where basically it was driven, as soon as Andreessen Horowitz came on the scene, right? Silicon Valley investor, to their credit, they were smart enough to be very early to crypto and to think about ways of investing in it. I think supposedly MKR was the first investment that they did. They, they evolved the philosophy around it, which was, we know how to invest in equity, all we need to do is make investing in tokens 
as close as possible to investing in equity, right? So, you know, there's a, uh, there's a set of agreements called the National Venture Capital Association forms for venture investment, right? These were largely designed by Silicon Valley VCs, um, and they're pretty much like the standard forms that everyone starts with and largely sticks to in venture capital preferred stock financings, right? For especially for technology companies, um, they basically extended, you know, a lot of those provisions to tokens, right? Like, okay, we have a preemptive right for stock. Uh, you know, we're going to have a preemptive right for tokens. Right. We have uh, or we'll just ban you what amounts to the same thing. We just will have a veto right over your producing tokens. You know, if you have a veto right, then you can ask for any terms you want right before you approve it. Right. Uh, uh, we have non-competes for founders related to them leaving the company and developing uh, competitive uh, and competing with with the company that they founded and that we invested in. What we'll do is, uh, yeah, this is all open source software, so um, it's a little bit different, but we'll just like have, we'll just make them sign agreements that say they can't create a competing protocol, whatever the hell that means, because of course, technologies don't compete with each other, businesses and people compete with each other, but it doesn't matter. We're just going to have this rule that you can't build a competing technology, whatever the hell that means, right? Because and, and, and every time, you know, you try to, you know, sort of like point out some type of contradiction or involved in this, right? Like the fact that this, this entire model comes from a situation where the, there was like the, this proprietary technology that a company owned and they were buying the equity in that company and that there's like no analogy to that with these blockchain things because they're all open source. They, they just say, well, we have fiduciary duties to our limited partners. Like we need these protections, right? Um, and like, like another one would be, you know, for example, um, uh, uh, the, uh, dilution, right. This is the big one actually, right. You have, you know, if you do a preferred stock financing, the preferred stockholders always have these anti-dilution protections where except for certain narrow exceptions, like a, like a pre-approved option plan or whatever, if the company issues more stock. Uh, without kind of like a waiver of the preempt of the uh, of the anti-dilution right, then they have to true up the existing uh, investors to their same percentage level of ownership, right? Um, so they they applied this like basically lock, stock, and barrel to tokens, right? But it makes no sense, right? Because after the thing is deployed, it's just open source. So every every fork of that software is arguably a dilution event, right? And they can't control whether someone forks it because it's open source right. software. Or if it's like a DAO or something that controls when there's new issuance or whatever, right? This decentralized governance, well, they're gonna be able to get diluted, right? And so then you have to have this whole negotiation. And, and a lot of lawyers, frankly, especially early on, they just missed this issue because they didn't understand the technology and they just, oh yeah, sure, of course, they, they're investors. They need anti-dilution protections for their tokens, of course. But, uh, you know, I think now most people are happy to it. But so then it becomes this whole negotiation of finding the exact right wording for what's the type of dilution event that someone controls versus what they don't. And it, it's just so antithetical to, to this entire idea. And it, it's trying to shoehorn uh, this, this ownerless public goods, commons type of decentralized thing into this proprietary model, right? Um, and, and 
it just causes enormous contradictions and it causes massive incentive alignment, right? If you look at the blue chip DeFi protocols like Compound, like Uniswap, right? All these guys have these, I talked about extrinsic uh, affiliation before, right? Um, this is what I mean, right? All those companies like Uniswap, like Compound, you know, even though they don't really own proprietary IP, they have a team that's on the cutting edge of like a new technology, right? And this automatically makes the equity of those companies valuable, right? Because like, for example, Coinbase could come in and they could do what's called an aqua hire. They could buy the equity, you know, make the guys rich in the process. They could subject the cash proceeds to further vesting, say, come work for Coinbase for a year and earn your merger proceeds that we just paid you to buy your company, right? And so they have these opportunities to monetize their equity. And therefore, the team is aligned with each other under this corporation. The team is aligned with the VC investors under this corporation. The VC investors are aligned with each other. But then on the other hand, there's these tokens. And all those guys have those tokens. But then on the other hand, there's a whole other class of people that also have those tokens. And those are the users, basically, right? They got this airdrop and sometimes people who, you know, retail investors, whatever you want to, people who bought uh, on the open market. And and those guys are in a really shitty position, right? Because um, all the all the insiders, they can sell their tokens to those guys, right? Um, uh, but but the the token the token guys they don't have any of the equity right so they basically get what's called a double dip right the VCs get a double dip they can sell the tokens and have one liquidity event then they can sell the equity and have a second liquidity event and so the incentives are completely misaligned right I think this actually is like yeah I think if you're set up this way you should be you should be regulated. Right. Because like you, you've set up this massive inside outsider thing. Right. On the other hand, you know, a, a protocol uh, like Curve um, uh, or some of these like, you know, sort of bootstrap protocols. Yeah. Curve has a little thing around it. Right. I mean, they have some proprietary IP, but they just, you know, I, I, you know, I happen I happen to know they don't have like VC investors. And I don't think they're really trying to monetize their equity. Some of the other teams, it's really all about the token. Right. Or sushi swap is another example. There is no company with sushi swap. Right. So literally all they have is the token. Everyone is in the same boat. The developers, the users, everyone's together. I do think that is different. And I do think that is like objectively better and fairer than a situation where like you're a user of like all you can't even buy the equity of the company or, you know, the product, so to speak. Um, and and you're like inherently just like, you know, building value for these other people who just happen to be in the right place at the right time. So uh, uh, like like this is like like basically this should lead to like a different way of thinking about investing in these protocols, right? And like I sort of think of it as like joint venture capital or like builder capital as opposed to venture capital. Right. The the classic venture capital models, we invest in you. You guys are the managers and you run this thing. We have these information and veto rights, et cetera. But on the other hand, it's a total contradiction because when VCs are pitching a hot portfolio company, they will say, oh, we're going to help you. We're going to give you ideas. We're going to give you connections. And in some cases, like, for example, Paradigm, which I think is great, they have their own internal developers that will literally help the team uh, uh, like do security audits and help 
build it, right? So, cool. so th- this old Silicon Valley model of investing uh, is it, people have moved away from it without even kind of rethinking it. And really what it's become is joint ventures, right? So we should just embrace that, right? We should just say, yeah, this is a, a, a joint venture among, um, you know, uh, uh, like uh, certain developers over here, uh, certain like guys who have a lot of money and also are doing some development over here. This other guy who has a lot of business connections, right? Uh, and and we're just all in it together. And instead of shifting all the risk onto some twenty-year-old dude in terms of the regulations and stuff, right? They're the last person that should bear all the risk, right? It should be everyone involved, right? And then the brilliant thing about this, right, is then everyone who's invested is also a builder. Right. Uh, uh, and, and, and there really is no pure investment anymore. So in a typical case, like uh, under the securities laws, that might be seen as a partnership and the securities laws don't apply to partnership. And then when you launch, right, all you're really doing is, is you're just growing that partnership because users get the token. You're never selling the tokens. You know what I'm saying? It's only people who are participating who are getting the tokens. So you're just growing this partnership over time and assuming we get good, these technologies are in fact developing more scalable models of coordination, then even though in past times a partnership had to be very small and personal because it just wouldn't scale beyond that, in theory, this partnership model, and I think in reality, is more scalable now. Right. And and I think that's in a kind of a deeper reason why the securities laws shouldn't apply to these things, but they only shouldn't apply if it's done in that correct incentive aligned way. If it's asymmetrical, then they absolutely should apply because the retail guys could get totally screwed. I think that's so many really interesting points and a lot to unpack there. I didn't realize to the extent that equity was being sold separately from tokens in in many project cases. And that's it's just so obvious that down the line, things like that are unsustainable because sort of like remote work companies where if you don't have to pay for an office in downtown Manhattan, well, now you have millions of dollars more to pay employees. So where are employees going to go? want to go? And just like with the venture model, if VCs are adding builders to the team and they're taking tokens, where are the smartest people going to go, right? And so hopefully that'll continue to change over time. Um, I, I really was curious to talk to you both about the aspects of crypto law that you're interested in. And, and there's a, a couple of subsets of that question, but are there certain areas that you each find fascinating? For, for myself, I know it's DAOs right now. I'm trying to think about, okay, if I have a, someone comes to me and they want to create a DAO, how can I do that in a way where they're protected? And Gabe, you alluded to partnerships and how those will continue to grow. And whenever I hear partnerships, and I think a lot of lawyers tend to think, oh, what about liability? And with partnerships, you know, liability can extend directly to the partners as opposed to an LLC. Uh, Are there certain areas that that you're thinking about, Sarah, and that you've kept an eye on? Or or just interested in in nerdy note? Yeah, I mean, I think we're very deep in Dow land. It's uh, really fascinating. I think, you know, and I've given, I've said this in, in other uh, forums, but I think that uh, right now we are experimenting with structures that exist um, and trying on like legal entity forms. And it's kind of like an itchy sweater, but down the line, right, having more bespoke entity types or, or modifications or advocating um, for 
actual change in law to suit the purposes will be really exciting to the extent that, you know, it gets done. Um, I, in terms of like crypto law, I really, again, I like the open source, um, open sourcing and collaborative efforts going on. I mean, outside of LexPunk, there's LexDAO, there's Bankless as legal guild. I can't, because these, you know, um, organizations are all sharing work and collaborating. I just feel like there's a potential to just skip light years over private practice and really be like in the mix. Uh, lawyers like to hold themselves, you know, you're looking down on a project, you're not in the weeds, you're not, you know, you haven't tried any of the tooling, you haven't uh, uh, taken the time to really get into the space. And, and LexPunk's really done that for everyone that's involved. It's like a crash course into um, DAO life, like using these tools, using Coordinate. And um, there's so much growth um, that comes from that hands-on experience and the ability to collaborate. I mean, that's really exciting. There's so many improvements we can talk about from a regulatory and legal perspective. I'd like to see all, I like to see life get easier, um, which will come with time. Everything's a struggle right now, you know, uh, working for Dow, getting health care, uh, you know, getting paid token tax makes me want to die. Um, so there's so, there's so much. Um, but I, I really, I think, am seeing active strides being made with the, the open sourcing of, you know, work product and collaboration. Just to double down on that, on the open sourcing, are there things that you think will shape how that moves forward? Because yeah. to go back to liability as well, right? Yeah, if yeah. you're the one who drafted a contract and someone uses yeah. it, you could be establishing a relationship. There's, There's so many limits to it. I mean, like people put out forms books all the time. Um, I've been saying this to people who approach us that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we know, like Lex Punk belongs to the streets. Like we're not someone's lawyer. We're not their girlfriend. Like, from the streets. <laughs> we are for everyone, but also we're no one's lawyer, right? You need to get your own lawyer. We're going to make it hopefully a public conversation about things that work, drafting considerations, get you <clears throat> way down the line starting. Um, where there's just nothing public in this space. I'm like, I feel like everyone gets in this space, you know, like 2017, I'm on like Edgar. <laughs> there's still nothing, right? There's no forums out there. And if there, there's a couple on Edgar now, mostly in the mining space, they're not good. Um, and so just having precedent uh, and like making life easier going forward for the next generation of crypto lawyers and just having stuff to build on is really kind of exciting for me. But yeah, there's limits to what LexMunk can do and frankly, what we want to do. We don't want to, you know, be one project's lawyer. We want to be sort of a public good. We have these communities that we're aligned with. We want to work on work in the space that's helpful to these builder-centric communities. But once that works out there, we want other people to access it, build on it, say, hey, you know, in a public forum, did you think about that? There's like no shame in improving things and things not being, you know, 100% perfect. That's how growth happens. Um, so, you know, we aren't everything. We shouldn't be everything to everyone. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. I have so I have one thing. I have one thing for you in terms of like what I see, uh, uh, how I'd like to see crypto evolve, and it's a little bit out there, but I actually think it's like very, very logical. Which is that sort of getting back to what we were talking about, you know, responsibility and things like that. To me, it feels like I, I get more and more certain. It feels inevitable to me that just as like at what like corporations which initially were just sort of like sets of contracts were eventually recognized as legal persons right because they it just made sense to say well it's not like all the individual people involved in this who have liability it's this abstract thing it's like a liability shock absorber it's like a robot made out of contracts right and we're just going to treat it as a legal person I think exactly the same thing should happen for smart contracts and other autonomous systems. All right. So the first jurisdiction that says, you know what, like these DAOs are making like a lot of money and, you know, the IRS will probably go and like assert these like crazy partnership theories and things like that as to why it's all owed to them. But like, ultimately they're not going to be able to enforce it. You know, what we'll do as a jurisdiction, like we will offer like a safe Harbor, to the first DAO that just says, uh, this is like siphons like 1% of its revenue to like an address we designate and just like hard, hard codes that in the protocol. And we'll say that that DAO is paying all its taxes for all the individuals and itself. And it's basically like a robot taxpayer, right? And that jurisdiction will make a lot of money, right? Um, it just makes sense. Uh, so like this to me is like sort of the frontier, right? We first have to like, we're in the, you know, there's the like whole, unfortunately like tainted by Theranos thing of like, you know, for, first they like laugh at you and then they something and then like they fight you and then like they agree with you, whatever the sequence is, right? We, we are now really, now we're really in the fighting stage, right? Once regulators kind of realize that they can't rein this in and just sort of like, prescribe that literally every like 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 it's illegal to create a technology that someone doesn't control it's not gonna they're not gonna win that fight right the genie's out of the bottle it's possible to create autonomous technologies then the next leap will be okay how what are we going from here right and it's an it's an evolution of human civilization at the end of the day like when ai joins the smart contracts those are going to be actual people regardless, right? We can just get there a little bit earlier at the legal level by recognizing these systems as legal persons, you know, and giving the individuals involved some per relief from personal liability if the systems are designed, you know, in a way that, you know, gives the government a cut, basically, for lack of a better word. It'll be really interesting how this develops because I think what you were referring to where they're gonna. It's the fighting time now, and and that happened throughout history, going back to the printing press, church bandit. When fax was first invented, the U.S. government banned fax machines. It was illegal to send a fax because the U.S. had a monopoly on sending mail. You couldn't send. You couldn't go against their system. You had to use their system. And we've seen this monopoly for the U.S. dollar for so many years now. And it's not going to change easily, especially with crypto. But then there's so many other things relating to securities as well which will be really interesting to see. And, and that's why, partially why I think Lexbuck is so important because if you're gonna move to a structure where more things are done online and on chain, you need some form of rules and some form of enforcement and someone to look to and say, hey, help me, You know, I need to solve this problem. Um, I was really curious to talk 
about autonomous lawyering. And this is sort of the last question, then we'll get into some rapid fire questions. And I appreciate all the time. It's been, I can't believe how long it's been. It felt like 10 minutes, but um, in terms of autonomous lawyering, Sarah, could you maybe explain what that means to you? And then I'd love to get both your opinions on what that, what maybe what the best case would look like in the future in terms of how lawyers interact. This is Gabe's brainchild. I got to defer to Gabe. Gabe wrote like this concept out. (laughs) So the autonomous law, the basic idea behind it is like you basically, you don't have, we should break out and I'll, I'll caveat all this by saying that like, it's very possible that certain things you would you would do under autonomous law might violate some attorney ethics rules in some jurisdictions, depending on exactly how you do it. So it's, it's not for the faint of heart. But uh, the idea behind it is like, let's break the model that an attorney is always acting for a client, right? Um, like, you know, if someone builds software, like they can build software for themselves, right? They don't have to have a client. They can just build something they think is cool. Um, you know, whatever people are doing, like in most areas of endeavor, like they can do it for themselves. They don't have to do it in a representative capacity. Mm-hmm. Somehow in law, there's, there's this idea that if you're acting as a lawyer, it's always for someone, right? And you always have this duty to zealously advocate for that person. It's this fiduciary relationship. I want to break away from that and, and for law to evolve into sort of like basically just a, another form of technical expertise, right? It's a technical expertise about how to like, uh, like structure incentives using certain mechanisms such as courts, uh, as well as to like resolve disputes when those incentives break down. And that's really all it is, right? Um, when a dispute is happening, I understand why the duties and like these rigid rules have to apply, but there's a, a vast field, like everything I did as an M&A attorney, right? It was just basically incentive design, right? Like I'm just negotiating a contract between two people. I'm writing the contract. And like, it was on a, it was less about like one party versus another. And like something really bad might happen. Like one will win, one will lose. That's not how it was. Right. It was more like, what's the right way to do this deal? Right. Um, and I am the expert to tell the people the right way to do the deal, at least in certain dimensions of it. And so, like, once you start thinking within that paradigm, then you could say, well, I can actually go and I can I can just represent myself or I can represent like the good of the system within a community and say, like, this is how I think the, the this system should be designed legally. Right. Um, and it just becomes another area of technical competence. Right. So I call that autonomous lawyer, where you're not representing a client, but you're providing legal expertise to help shape, you know, design and decision making. Sarah, is there something maybe not maybe not even analogous to that, but is there something that you hope to see be improved upon in the future from a legal perspective, more so from even just how lawyers interact with clients and the law and and government, or maybe it's from the regulator side? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think there are rigidities and trade-offs and, you know, being in a service uh, profession that is licensed and gated um, that there'll be an inevitable liberalization over the years, but it's, it's going to be slow and lagging. I, I don't know that I have any deep thoughts or hopes there besides just like evolution over time. Um, 
but you know, like some of this stuff, it is when you are someone's lawyer, it's, it's, you're bearing a lot of responsibility to them. And for a lot of the work that we're doing, like that's not the intention or the goal. Um, we're like, and so like keeping with, uh, Gabe's ethos there, you know, like you should be able to put public goods out and say, don't use these and n not have people sue you. <laughs> um, there, like having some certainty around that would be lovely. Um, but you know, I think that professions like these move really slowly. And so change will happen with time, but it won't be satisfying or keep any sort of a brisk pace there. It, it will be an interesting few years, especially because it's such a regulated uh, profession, so walled off. And the only way you can be a lawyer is if you meet all this criteria that this governing body sets out and they can kick you out at their discretion, more or less. Um, now we'll, we'll get into the rapid fire questions. The, the first is, what advice did you wish you were given? Like looking back to the beginning of your legal career, maybe you're in law school, maybe you're fresh out of it. What advice were you given that was really helpful or what advice? I think the better question is what advice would you give yourself if you go back and you say, Hey, Sarah, you know, you're 22, 23 years old or same thing with Gabe. What, what would you tell yourself? Maybe Sarah, you could go first. Oh, I think, uh, yeah, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to like have a traditional career path. Um, even if you know that it's not necessarily for you. Um, I don't know that I could ever convince myself to take more risks because I'm very <laughs> risk averse. Um, but getting out of that mindset where you are, you know, continuing on a path. Some people are perfectly happy. They love private practice. Um, but I'd say like the majority of people go into it because it's expected. Um, and it's certainly a learning opportunity. Um, but life is a lot more fun when you pursue passions and take risks. Yeah, I think that's a great one, especially for anyone listening to a podcast like this. Yeah, advice. Well, it's a very different world now to... Uh... So the one where I decided to go to law school, very different world, right? Because I'm 40 years old. Um, if I were young now, me personally, I like I wouldn't go to law school, right? And there's just the, the opportunity that's out there for in the world to you know build technology, build cool things in industries where that's embraced, right, versus being, you know, like, I used to have a law professor who said law is, you know, the only industry where, like, uh, uh, like creativity is a dirty word, right? Um, you know, I somewhat buck that trend, you know, as does Sarah, you know, and some other people, you know, but, but we're certainly the exception. And if you go this path of wanting to become a lawyer, and, you know, there are some skills you got to learn, right? And those, like, there are not many people who can teach you those skills. And then even after you learn the skills, you have to deal with other lawyers who you could be the most open-minded lawyer in the world. They won't be open-minded. They'll be jerks. And so like, you're going to be in a world that pretty much despises creativity and like, it, like rewards sociopathy. Right. Um, so in order for you to do this, you either have to like, Maybe you just have the type of mind that is just so good at like legal type reasoning, but that's just like clearly your best opportunity in life. And so I get that, right? 
And you can do that. Just go into it with your eyes open, you know, as to what it's going to be like and look for opportunities to kind of like be the change that you want to see in the industry. On the other hand, right, like the, the other question I'd ask myself, right, is I'd be like, well, is this just like, like, you know, do I just need a job? And I think this is the like the most lucrative thing for my skill set, which is totally fine, right? Then just know your object is making money. Go in, make as much money as you can, as quickly as you can, right? If on the other hand, passion comes into it, like you're very interested in the law, like you really are interested in it, you want to either help people a lot by using a legal skill set, uh, it could be disadvantaged people. Most times, if you have a passion for it, it's going to be people who, who otherwise lack access to justice, right? Or whatever it is, or you want to innovate in the law, then I would, um, at, at that point, I would say, great. Like, I, I love that. I, I hope that there are a lot of such people. I would, I would try, just as Sarah was saying, I would try, if that's your mentality, I would try to divorce myself as much as possible from the game, right? Because law school exists to brainwash you into this zero-sum type of competitive environment. You're going to have to put all that in your mind look at what's the lowest cost way that you can learn about the law enough to achieve the ends that you want. And then you, you have the luxury where since you know you're trying to innovate or help people or whatever it is, as opposed to just maximizing your income, you have the luxury where you should also now look at how to be well-rounded. So I would definitely like if crypto law is what you're interested in. And I think this is a great path for anyone because you could go to law school, you can come out of law school, you can become a crypto lawyer right? And you could kind of learn on the job and they're not snobbish in this industry, right? So they won't care that you didn't spend five years at Wachtell Lipton first, right? So this is someone's mentality. By all means, do it. Go to a cheap law school or go to a law school where you got the scholarship. Study hard, obviously learn. Get, network with people early, find mentors, but very, very importantly, build out the skill set that most lawyers are dramatically lacking in, including even myself, though I've tried to have it somewhat, is, you know, learn the technical side as well. Take that equally seriously, learn computer science. Um, but uh, yeah, like just, so th those are kind of the two paths, right? Like if you are a sociopath and you just want to make as much money as possible, go for it. If you're thinking you want to make a lot of money, but you're not like sociopathic, you may want to reconsider because your life is going to suck. You're going to deal with jerks a lot of the day. And if you have a passion for it, absolutely go for it. But like do it in a way that is unconventional from the very start. Open-minded. Don't even try to go to the top school. You know, go to find something that works for your goals. Such a great answer from both of you. And I think one thing a lot of people I spoke to, and I think me personally as well, it's that balance between you want to be a great crypto lawyer and you want to learn a bit about everything and how help any clients. And you love that aspect, right? I, I would love being able to say, hey, let me help you do with X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, balancing that with you, it's difficult to do crypto full time, at least in the beginning of your career at a larger law firm. So then if you go in house, but then in my perspective, maybe this is not true, but my, my thinking is you might might be more limited. Sarah, Sarah's got to go. So. Murder imminent. <laughs> I love it. That's cool. I can hang around for a bit longer. See you, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. It, it's, it's that balance between you want to be a great lawyer. And then if you go in house, it, it, what do you think? Is it true that when, once you're in house, 
it's more limited because now I guess you only have the one client or is it better in the sense, well, now, now you have the time and the opportunity to dive deeper into certain things. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, I, w- I wish I had like a better answer, like by far the best way to gain good lawyering skills. And I would say probably like close to the only way, uh, especially for a lot of things, like there's no way you could ever learn to be um, like an M&A attorney. Uh, on your own. Like you could buy every book, you could read it, you could learn every scintilla of information in it. You could read every case uh, that a judge has decided by m You would still not know how to be an m and lawyer. The only way you can learn to be an m and lawyer is to go like, is to go, or like a, like a really great m and lawyer is to go to like a top 20 firm, right? Like be a total pleb who does like really boring work for years and just like be able to observe the great M&A lawyers in action while they also treat you like garbage and slowly learn it, right? It's like a, it's like a, the most brutal kind of apprenticeship. Um, and that probably is true for a lot of areas of law. Certain areas of law, it's not true. Like, like for example, if you just want to give advice about compliance with securities law, I actually think you could like sit, you could read the statutes, right? You could, you know, yeah, you would still need to ask people some questions about like, what's typical practice and stuff, but it wouldn't be that hard uh, because, you know, it's just like a body of law you can learn, right? And and you're ultimately just giving kind of like compliance advice. But if there's like a certain kind of dance you want to do, you want to be a mark, a player in a certain type of market as a lawyer, there's no other way to do that except by working for a law firm that is a player in that market, right? So for example, venture capital financings, um, you know, uh, 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 M&A, um, various types of commercial deals like tech transactions, you, you would just, you would have to go in and learn it. So it a little bit depends, but yeah, if you want those great lawyering skills, you're going to have to do the time. Last question for you, Gabe, and, and thanks so much for all the time. I'd be really curious to know if there's maybe two or three things or maybe more that you find make a great lawyer. Now these could be soft skills. These could be physically tangible skills. Are, are there things that come to mind that you say, and I think this gives young lawyers and, and older lawyers as well, a way to say, okay, I'm going to go after these skills during at least the beginning of my career and throughout. Uh, there, yeah, it's, it's somewhat subjective, right? Because it depends what you mean by great lawyer. In terms of effectiveness in getting clients good results, I think there are many, many roads lead to Rome, right? There can, there are, I've known like and heard of, you know, really technically sloppy lawyers with like basically like ADD who like can't draft, can't read, but they're great people persons. And, you know, there's a saying like uh, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge. Right. And those types of lawyers, despite maybe not being the most technical can achieve fantastic, you know, results for clients. Right. Um, And they also, another skill that they could have is, just being an interface between like the business people at a client and the more technical lawyers, you know, within their law firm. And that that's a talent unto itself being that sort of API. Right. Um, uh, uh, and, and that, that is a certain type of great lawyer in terms of technical prowess, which I think is probably what you really need. Right. Um, and like, like someone who's like the complete package, right. Of being a lawyer, like they can give the advice, 
They can do the drafting. They also know the substance of the laws. They've read the footnotes in the cases, right? That, you know, I, I think, I do think it's, um, it's a number of things, right? Number one, like there actually have been like studies that show like law is one of the few areas where uh, performance like linearly uh, improves just the longer you practice law, right? So like, these like 80 year old lawyers who are in some of these law firms, even though like they're probably like by every like cognitive performance test, they're probably very low. Uh, a lot of them are like really amazing lawyers um, because they just have such knowledge and experience. Right. Um, uh, so certainly experience is a factor. I do think there's like um, just certain types of talents are very helpful. Uh, if you are, you know, I, I used to like, uh, I got a bit of mentoring from uh, former Chancellor Strine of the Delaware Chancery Court early in my career, which was, you know, had a huge impact on me. I'm sure he barely remembers who I am. But but the one of the things he used to say is, I'm not smart, I'm Blarney smart, right? And and there is, there's just a certain type of mindset. You're, you're facile with words, you're facile with argumentation. You can hold sort of like a multi-threaded like set of like logical arguments in your mind and you can sort of play like chess in terms of debating that is just a useful talent to have and i do frankly i do think you know maybe it could be developed to an extent but i think most people they just either have that talent or they don't um so so it's partly talent it's partly experience and then i think it's it's I think every great lawyer has their own style that they've evolved, right? Um, like I, I used to, like one of my mentors in M&A, a guy named uh, Rick Kleiman, uh, uh, who has zero interest in blockchain, so I know for sure he's not listening to this, but he, you know, you, you could recognize a Rick Kleiman contract, uh, uh, even if you didn't know he drafted it, because it's like twice the length of everyone else's, and it just has all of these traps in it that favor his clients, right? He would put the same rule in different places, in different ways, so that as the contract was negotiated over time, he would just know that, that no one has the stamina to, to catch all the different places in the different tricksy ways that it's phrased. And ultimately he would get like amazing results for all of his clients because he would just, he would just, you know, he was just smarter than the other side. And, and he was also just more passionate and more willing to just care more Right. And, and so he evolved this style. And I think, you know, and, and on the other hand, I had a mentor who was like a total minimalist. Right. And, and that has its own advantages. So I think I think every great lawyer has it's a combination of experience, talent, opportunities, luck that they had, frankly, to get the right training and exposure. And then I do think there's just this ineffable quality of someone who develops their own style and, and becomes known for that. I think those are some great way, things for people to think about. And, and I like that you underscored mentorship too. I think it's so important, especially in a profession relating to something like crypto where it's so fast moving and it's so open to debate and th there's so much nuance and so much learning being done by everyone all around. And, and I think this episode will be a great source of mentorship for people. So thank you, Gabe, so much for awesome. coming on. Hopefully thank you, man. You great great questions. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, happy to hang out anytime, man. Yeah, no, this was great. I really appreciate it, man. Have a great day and have a great weekend. Take care. Thanks so much, Gabe.